Hi folks, I'm honoured to welcome Fred Cheney to the pod the day after the Federal Liberal Party decided to oppose The Voice. Fred has a lifelong commitment to Aboriginal rights and reconciliation. He helped fund the WA Aboriginal Legal Service before um, entering the Senate as a WA Senator and was Aboriginal Affairs Minister in the Fraser Government. After leaving politics at 52, he was a long-time member of the Native Title Tribunal and Chair of Reconciliation Australia, and he was a member of the former government's co-design process of the um, uh, Indigenous voice um, to Parliament from 2020. So, Fred, this might be a funny question, but um, you're 81 now, <laughs> and you've been a lifelong Liberal, and you've been a, a lifelong what would you call it, not really a supporter, uh, you've been heavily involved in, in, in the Aboriginal rights and reconciliation movement. How, do you, how did you feel personally when, when the Liberal Party decided as a party to oppose the voice? Well, I felt very disappointed because um, clearly it does make the path to the referendum more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult. Uh, but sadly, I wasn't surprised because uh, for years now, I've been watching the Liberal Party balk on these sort of issues. Um, I've seen them, you know, chasing political advantage when they should have been considering how to properly govern the country. And I've really lost a lot of faith in the party because I think they they simply are in the business of politics, not in the business of good government. So, Ken, as we're speaking, um, Ken Wyatt has, has just resigned from the Liberal Party. Um, I, I just can't imagine how he feels. <laughs> you know, the, the first Indigenous um, MP in federal politics, the first Indigenous Cabinet Minister, um, the, the man who, under the former government, was leading what was said to be a, a process for a referendum in the last term. Um, this is what he said. He said... I still believe in the Liberal Party value, Party's values, but I don't believe in what the Liberals have become. I'm just sort of wondering, it, it, it's not climate change, it's not the federal ICAC, it's not the tra- treatment of women. It, it looks like the voice could be the ultimate existential crisis. Where, where are you at with, with what this means in, in terms of the Liberal Party's future? Well, I think in terms of Ken, um, this must be a period of intense disappointment for him and and indeed sorrow for him because of his recent role in the party, his recent role as a minister and his role in uh, carrying forward the notion of a constitutional amendment. But um, I think the Liberal Party's got a much wider problem that you can't just sort of focus on one particular aspect. I mean, to me, the point at which the Liberal Party clearly departed from its roots was the robo-debt matter. Now, yeah. I think we're about to get a Royal Commission report on robo-debt, but I don't think we need a report to know that the Liberal Party uh, knowingly imposed enormous burdens on pretty defenceless individual citizens, uh, some of whom were driven to suicide by what the government was doing, put the onus of proof on the citizen to prove they didn't owe money, in circumstances where many of them would have been incredibly difficult to produce the relevant records because it was years ago, uh, they were in intermittent employment and so on and so forth. I, 
joined the Liberal Party because I thought it stood for the citizen against the state. It stood for the individual. It, uh, it used to proudly boast that when it looked at socialist countries overseas, particularly in the uh, pre-Berlin Wall era of you know, communist socialism in, uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, we were the party who stood for the individual against the mighty, the overpowering might of the state. And yet ministers like Tudge, ministers like Scott Morrison, uh, they allowed the whole might of government to, bow down, to bear down on citizens and to put the onus of proof on them to prove they didn't owe money. They only had it cost the government something like $1.8 billion, I think. But they only stopped when finally the court said, this is illegal, what you are doing. The truth is that each time there was an appeal against these terrible injustices, the government would settle the individual case to avoid it getting into the real court system. So uh, it was an absolute standing on its head, of my view, what I thought liberal principles were about. And I think it was done with cold-blooded intensity, and it indicated that the party didn't see all individuals as individuals. It saw certain people in Australia as individuals worthy of protection, and not others. And that really brings to what seems to me as a crisis in the party, because you know, if you're a migrant person, you really think, and a lot of Australians are either migrants or the children of migrants, do you think the Liberal Party's on your side? Uh, if you're an Aboriginal person, do you think the Liberal Party's on your side? If you're a woman, do you think the Liberal Party's on your side? Uh, I mean, you can go on, the list goes on and on of people that the Liberal Party didn't seem to care for and didn't seem to want to extend their noble principles to the protection of those people. I mean, another sort of classic case was the children overboard affair. Now, I yes. had a lot to do with. I had a lot to do with refugee uh, people. Uh, I've got some great refugee friends, and the one thing that I think marked them out is their devotion to their children. It was the most terrible calumny of people in distress to say that they would be throwing their children overboard. I mean, that was disgusting. And yet, the Liberal Party went to an election, used that for political advantage. Now, this is sort of this is the triumph of low politics over a party having an interest in governing Australia well. And I think that in the present circumstances, where are the signs that we've got a party that is standing up for true conservative values? When did the Liberal Party start talking about, for example, the gap between income and expenditure of the federal government? Now, it seems to me there are some issues that are unavoidably, uh, unavoidable in the future. One of them is this terrible gap between what we raise and what we spend. What should the attitude of a Liberal Party be, a broad church Liberal Party with elements of conservatism? It surely must be in favour of balancing up government spending with government income. But you won't see them grasping important nettles like that. Instead, they will rail against any additional taxes that are imposed at the same time as they support every item of additional expenditure. So, you know, there's no logic. There is no conservative sort of pattern that I can discern in the party. But if they want to call themselves conservative, then at least act in a consistent and conservative and principled way. They're not going to do it. They're just facing votes. That's what they're about. What what gets me about this decision is is I I truly thought they'd do a conscience vote like they did with 
same-sex marriage to, to avoid the current mess where you have, you know, the federal Liberal Party saying no, hard no, and you've got um, the Tasmanian Liberal Premier saying hard yes, you've got the West Australian Liberal leader saying hard yes, you've got New South Wales Liberal saying yes, um, Victoria basically yes, and even the LNP, that Crucifelli guy, said he was keeping an open mind. And I I couldn't help thinking it with someone, someone like the, the head of the LNP and Victoria sort of saying, okay, we better see how this plays out before we jump. So you've, you've really, you've got the, the Liberal Party just in, in turmoil, really. And at the same time, with the Nats, you had the, the head of the country Liberal Party in the Northern Territory, what's his name, um, Brandon Lawson, resigning over this, Andrew G resigning from the party over this. You haven't had any resignations from the party except Ken Wyatt. Um, you haven't had any resignations from the front bench. Um, you've got a couple of a couple of the remaining moderates on the back bench saying they'll um, they'll go yes. It's it's as though I, I don't I don't know. It, it just seems to me that 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 the party's falling apart, Fred, and, and that that the in into the vacuum something must come. What what do you think of that, Rave? Well, look, I I think the party is. Is in a, in a way without any heart at the moment. In other words, it doesn't really have a set of beliefs that really guide its actions, except the belief that it wants to win win votes. Mm. And I think they go. They don't even have a very sensible creation of how they might go about that. I mean, I, I said a few minutes ago that you know there's a whole lot of slices of Australia which seem alien to the modern Liberal Party. I include in that women, particularly professional women, but women generally. I would include in that many migrants. Take the Chinese, for example, the way they've been alienated. We've got a very large Indian group in Australia now. I'm not sure how they're uh, greeted by the Liberal Party. They did run an Indian-Australian candidate in the recent by-election, which didn't seem to help. But the fact of the matter is they, if you're a gay, if you're a refugee, if you're an immigrant, if you're an Aboriginal, if you're a woman, if you're—I think mean, you can go on multiplying this uh, this thing. And I think I, I think their problem is that they are—they've been left behind. They haven't caught up with what modern Australia is. Australia has changed enormously in my lifetime, and will go on changing. It's—it's it's not recognisably the same country in a whole lot of ways. In many ways, I think it's a better country than it was. But if you are a party that wants to succeed electorally, you have to actually start off by understanding the community that you're seeking to represent. And it helps if you actually like that community. If you're activated by dislike, why would people vote for you? I mean, it just, I just shake my head. I mean, what do they think they're doing? So, look, I think they've got a really, they've got a terrible problem and, it's, and it, it, they're locked into the problem because the people who control the party are, in fact, the problem. Uh, I mean, Western Australia is the extreme case, but it's got two members of the lower house in Western Australia. It's been dominated by a small group of people who have manipulated the party, manipulated the branches, 
And this is not new, it goes way back. I could say it went back to 1975. It's been going on for a very long time. And what are these people about? Are they about saying how to govern West Australia well, or are they about saying, I want to control the Liberal Party, mm. and I want to exclude from the Liberal Party any of those awful people of whom I disapprove? It's a formula for disaster. But how do you get that little group of branch manipulators out of the system? You almost have to start again. Now, to start again, I joined the Liberal Party in 1958 at the university, but I was part of the Liberal Party proper. I joined a branch as soon as I left university, and I found a community-based party which was very representative of the community. It, might, it had some strong conservative elements, but it was very tolerant. It certainly accepted me. It provided a vehicle within which I could happily operate. And they were genuine Australians. They were, to use Scott Morrison's terms, classic quiet Australians. They were not self-aggrandizing. They manned polling booths. They put up resolutions. They raised money for election campaigns. They were thoroughly decent people. And they had no self-interest other than to have... They, they saw themselves as a bit better than the Labor Party, actually. Uh, there was that thing. There was that Labor mob, a bunch of lefty socialists. And in those <laughs> days, if you think about the Victorian ALP and Bill Hartley and all that sort of thing, they had a lot... You know, that was a, a dopey point of view. Um, but it, it was a party that really was community-based. Now, that meant that the politicians were drawn from that community base and the politicians were accountable to that rather broad community base. And that's what's disappeared. You've now got minute memberships, manipulated memberships. Of course, there are some good people still in the party. There are some people trying to do the right thing in some areas where they are perhaps even dominant. But overall, the party has become a shell which is manipulated by a tiny group of people who don't want to give up control. And so how do you break out of that? Now, what Dutton's challenge is to get a restoration of true mass party across Australia. And I'm not sure that's within his capacity. So Western Australia is a state that um, could vote no. It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty small margin of yes at yep, the moment. Sure. Um, your your family has a, a very long history in in this area. I was reading up on your dad that he was administrator of the Northern Territory. Was it for three years before before, um, Whitlam. before Whitlam and uh, Malcolm Fraser? You were in Parliament when Malcolm Fraser passed the Northern Territory Land Rights Act, um, yep. and you've been very active your whole life. Your your brother Michael has been really strong in West Farmers on on reconciliation, and of course your your niece is is now in Parliament and a, a strong supporter of the Voice. Um, what sort of campaign are you thinking of joining, or, or, or would you envisage to, to 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 bring WA over the line? Bearing in mind, of course, that Ken Wyatt is a West Australian, and um, yeah. has the has the the honour of being the first Indigenous MP in Parliament. I think it'll be a community campaign. Yep, um, and probably the less politicians, the better. Um, I mean, it was really interesting being in the Curtin by-election campaign. I've been outside the political system for a very long time. 
but I have come very enthusiastically supported Kate, my niece, who's a fantastic person and at a happier time and a different thing would have made a wonderful Liberal Member of Parliament in my view. But the fact of the matter is that she ran as an independent because there was such despondency in the community about the state of government in Australia, about the state of the previous government, about the need for change, and I think a belief in the community that we weren't going to get changed by just voting for another one of the major parties. Mm. And so her candidacy was something which didn't come from her, by the way. She was approached yes. by concerned citizens, as others were. And she ran. And what happened? She wound up with about a thousand helpers. Uh, I was in uh, uh, Zoe Daniels' electorate in Melbourne just a couple of weeks ago. Yep. I think she had about 2,000 helpers. Yep. Now, these helpers were not party people. These were voters. These were citizens who wanted to see a change in Australian politics. That's what they were after. And they set out to achieve it. Now, as I, at the meeting I went to in Zoe Daniels' electorate was about the voice. And I was there with Pat Dodson. But the fact of the matter is that it'll require exactly the same sort of mobilisation of good citizens, the sort of people who once were in political parties, mm. to actually say this matters and we're going to actually work for this. So I think, I think the challenge for the yes case is to mobilise the citizenry. That's what the Euro Statement Part was meant to do. It wasn't meant to be a statement to government. It was a statement to the people of Australia. And as I think um, Noel Pearson said this morning, it's over to the people of Australia now. And I think one of the things, again, the Liberal Party doesn't understand, I think Australia has changed. Uh, people my age, uh, what is it, stale, pale and, stale, pale and whatever we are, <laughs> the despised old white guys like me, uh, you know, I think my that cohort, you've still got a lot of people who want to turn the clock back. But I think if you move down below our generation, it's a different country. And the all the polls show that. The voting trends are so different among the young and mm. the intermediate in life. And I think that's where the Liberal Party just doesn't doesn't understand that this is a changed Australia. It's changed in so many different ways. And one of the ways is that the young, for example, they're gender neutral, they're colour blind. They think, they think arguments about colour and gender are complete bullshit, actually. They just, they just don't comprehend what, what is this about. Um, and so I think the sort of worst elements of the coalition parties, and I include the worst elements of the National Party and the Liberal Party, still think that racism and sexism and gender inequality and everything are the natural order of things. Well, they're wrong. They're wrong. That's not Australia anymore. Australia expects respect for women and respect for gender difference. It expects respect for colour. We've now got a large population which would never have been permitted into the country under the way Australia policy. And I think we're a better country for it. And then remember, it was the Liberal Party that brought about that change. It was Harold Holt that brought about that change. But unfortunately, his party didn't keep up with the changes that it put, in, put into train. So you've been involved in this process for a long time. It's been going on for decades, this campaign. Yeah, I was involved campaign. in the expert panel in the, 
in the Gillard period, and then I was on the later team. The, yeah. Uh, so yeah. the end of the beginning, I guess, was when Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten met at Kirribilli House on the 6th of July 2015 and decided that they would jointly appoint a referendum council to go out and consult and find out what Aboriginal people would like in the constitution. It, it started off so beautifully. <laughs> um, what, what, can you just give us a brief history of what happened since and how we got to this, you'd have to say a horror of a, of a, a contested um, referendum on, on this question? Well, I suppose it's in part the um, failure of the last coalition government has contributed to our present imbroglio. Um, I mean, it would have been interesting had Scott Morrison still been around as to whether he'd have followed through, for example, on the excellent initiatives that he, I give him great credit for this, by the way, the excellent initiatives he did on the closing the gap, where he said governments should always act in partnership with Aboriginal people, and he prevailed upon all of the states and the territories to sign up to working in partnership with Aboriginal people. The, the signature of every head of government in Australia is on that document. Well, how can you be in partnership if you can't hear what the other side's saying? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the, the one thing we've learned in 50 years with many failures, of which I'm part, and we're all part of the failures of the past, but the one thing we've learned is that you can't do things to people, you've got to do things with people. Well, you've got to involve those people in the decisions and that's really, that's the simplicity of the voice. It's saying we need to be able to hear what you are saying. Now, I've got a brother, uh, Michael, who's a very successful businessman and he, as you've already mentioned, is involved in this campaign now and he's uh, supporting it strongly. But I thought his explanation of it was so simple. He, he's chairman of West Farmers. Mm-hmm. And he said, West Farmers employs 4,000 Aboriginal people. Wow. How can we do that if we don't hear what they're saying? And I think it's that simple, practical thing. That's what this referendum's about. Not all that garbage that the bloody constitutional lawyers are going on about. And I say garbage because do you remember, um, and I'm sorry to be rambling on a bit here, but do you remember when Native Title came along? Oh, God, yes. Do you remember the people who said you're going to lose your backyard? Remember all I think that was, I campaign? think that might have been John Howard. That, that was yes, Wick, wasn't think, it? I think it was. Yes. And conservative politicians and some lawyers and some troublemaking people that I would describe as bastards, I think, really set about to create fear and loathing in the Australian community. And I can tell you as a member of the Native Party Tribunal after I left Parliament that Initially, Native Title was a deeply divisive subject. I mean, it caused the most, oh. not least here in Western Australia. Now, when we get a Native Title determination, it's on page 27 of the newspapers. Yeah. It's so much part of the furniture. All those scare campaigns, all those legal fears were rubbish. Yeah. And so it's proven. And I think Australia is a better place because of that change. I think Australia will be a better place if we have a structure within which the voice of Aboriginal people can be heard. I think if the Australian people think about it in those ways and don't be distracted by a whole plethora of lawyers saying lots of different things, then I think the thing will succeed. You've got to pick your lawyers here. I pick Robert French. I pick other 
Justice of the High Court, who made it clear they don't think there's a problem here. They won't be listening to people that have a vested interest in creating difficulties. Um, could I ask for... Uh, I suppose it's an unfair question to ask for a prediction, but, I mean, I, I've sort of been pretty pessimistic for a while because I sort of... For, if the Indigenous hard left and hard right and the, the white, you know, the non-Indigenous hard right get together, it, it, it could be quite difficult to get to, to, to yes. Um, do, do you think that it's it's possible now? Um, and, and what what happens if, if, it, if it fails? Let's start with the, is it possible? I think, I think a win is certainly possible. Mm-hmm. And I put that view on the basis that I think Australia is a changed country. Mm-hmm. And there are a whole lot of people to whom the arguments against are entirely irrelevant. I also think that the Australian newspaper is really the, although they publish a variety of opinion to their credit, but I think that the overall impact of their reporting and some of their, what I'd call more um, proselytizing journalists uh, is to the contrary. I think that sort of journalism has very little impact on Australian people these days. Okay. I don't think too many people are listening. So I think a lot of those, those of us who follow these things more closely, and I read the Australian every day, let me say, because I feel I need to know what they're saying. Mm. But the, the, the truth is, I think that if you look at the result in the New South Wales state election, the predictions of the Murdoch press were not exactly... And, and the Australian would say, oh, we published a poll on the day of the election which proved to be absolutely accurate. And that's true. But the question is whether the media overall was inching towards trying to support a coalition government. I think it was. I don't think the public hit the dam. Social media, and, and this is where I've become totally inexpert, social media is so much more important now. So many people get their views from social media. And so take my Nice's campaign, which I was quite involved in. You door knocked, Fred. I door knocked. I, <laughs> I, I went to meetings. I was very involved and I thought it was a very important that she should win for the sake of Australian democracy, actually. Mm. But the, the truth of the matter is I didn't see a major part of that campaign because I'm not on social media. I don't want to be on social media, a sign of old age, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is that that's what's happening in the system. And so for oldies who rely on old media, um, really, we don't know what's going on. And uh, I think that uh, the influence of the Australian and other Murdoch uh, publications is much, much less than they think. And I think that's being proved in successive elections. But I mean, overall, yes, can we win? We can but it will require the citizenry to get off their backsides and be part of a people's movement. And I think that is achievable. And if it's lost? If it's lost, um, there'll be an immense sense of disappointment. Uh, people will go off the deep end. Um, mm. It'll be, you know, it'll be pretty shocking. But I, I'm sorry, my experience of following this closely for 60 years now is that you never give up. No. You know, if you if you've been around for the land rights debate in the nineteen sixties, 
Land rights was a communist plot. Land rights was a disgusting... So your dad was a comic. <laughs> no, my, my dad... My Menzies dad. government minister. Yeah, he was, but but he, he... My dad is a thoroughly decent human being, which is a starting mm. point for me. But the fact of the matter is that for elements, particularly of the WA Liberal Party, not my father was a federal liberal, uh, land rights was diabolical. It was turning the order of nature on its head. <clears throat> so... Aboriginal people <coughs> were put into jail at Nookabar. A clergyman friend of mine was put into jail for being at the gate at Nookabar. Mm -hmm. It was, it's very easy to forget the struggle and how long it took to get there, but they got there. And if you look at that, if you look at what happened in Landright, mm -hmm. Millipum's case, the Gove Land case, yep. that took ages. It took years, but that was the foundation for the whole land rights and native title because Aboriginal people found their voice in that court. Yep. Aboriginal people laid out the whole story and a very good judge documented their story. And that led to the whole land rights movement. That's what led to the Woodward Report. That's what led to the land rights legislation. And then, of course, land rights, ran into a brick wall in Western Australia mm -hmm. uh, and in Queensland, but mainly in Western Australia, where the mining industry combined with the Liberal government here, Charles Court's government, they loathed uh, land rights. And yeah. they fought both the state Labor government under Burke and the federal Liberal government under Hawke to a standstill. And mm -hmm. Hawke back, backed off his promise to legislate for national land rights. Yeah. And Burke backed off his promise to legislate for land rights. Yeah. So the struggle went to the courts. It went from politics into the courts. And the fantastic, I mean, the Mabo case is the, is the beginning of modern Australia, in my view. That's the biggest change since 1788. Yeah. That's where the balance of power shifted. That's where the mining industry went from being bitter opponents of native title to being people who had to work with native title because the Aboriginal people were stakeholders. They weren't supplicants, they were stakeholders. Mm. And so uh, Australia moved into a whole new era. And I mean, making agreements with Aboriginal people is a daily occurrence here in Western Australia, because it has to be. So that's, that's the new Australia. It's not the old Australia of Sir Charles Court. It's not the old Australia of Joe Bielke Peterson. You know, that's gone. But I think Little shades of the Liberal Party still want to live in those eras, and I think they're just out of date and out of touch. Yeah, well, Fred, I don't know if you know it, but I'm a Queenslander, and I grew I up under Sir Joe, and Sir yes. Joe tried to, as you know, tried to um, ban um, a group of Aborigine, Aboriginal people buying a cattle station on their mm -hmm. ancestral lands, and he also passed legislation to abolish all, all native all native title. I mean, the High Court, luckily for the Racial Discrimination Act, the High Court was able to overturn right. these things. Right. But, you know, Queensland is obviously a, a, a very, very difficult state. Um, as you know, Howard wanted to go to a double dissolution race election on WIC and the only thing that stopped him was Pauline Hanson winning 11 seats in the, <laughs> in the 1998 Queensland election and he went, oh dear, <laughs> we better not have one. Um, so Queensland and WA are... I guess they're frontier states in, I mean, in that way. 
Um, Which leads me to my final question. I suppose the thing that I was pretty shocked by what Dutton did, but I was really distressed by the the fact that he called it the Canberra voice and said he was interested in regional and rural Aborigines. And it just seemed to me to be setting up a city versus country thing, which is just so damaging. I mean, you know, you can see where it's going to go. Oh, those elites in the cities, they don't know anything, you know. And I just thought, oh. But then again, I mean, he's basically admitting he's a regional and rural party in a way to be in lockstep with the Nats. Well, um, what do you think about this This setting it up as, as city versus country? Well, my immediate response when I heard him say that was that it's a very clever, again, yeah. politically driven way of doing yeah. it. It's just a yeah. way of, I mean, there, there is a certain, in this great big spread out country, Canberra does give people the whoops a bit. <laughs> I mean, there's no question. It's very easy to whip up anti-Canberra sentiment. So I thought it was just, again, one of those short-term, totally political ploys that has nothing to do with getting right answers for Australia. In terms of his future, in terms of setting up the Liberal Party as being the party of rural and regional and not the cities, well, if you know anything about Australian demographics, that's pretty dumb. Mm. Um, I mean, if we, for better or worse, we are city dwellers. Um, and although you know, I've spent a lot of time in the, in the outback myself, um, and I really respect country people and think, you know, they, many of them are fantastic people. Um, the idea that you're going to get a majority out of them, it's just, just the demographics are against you. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a very short-term, it's attempt to get a short-term political advantage at long-term political cost. And, of course, every one of the, the, the um, Liberal independents that, that, that won... Um, they all had very strong pro-voice policies before the election and you've seen from Goldstein that the crowds, like people really want to be involved. It's as though Dutton is taking the Morrison playbook and saying, oh, we'll we'll let them go um, and go for the outer suburban and the regional and yet Aston went, huh? Um, Do you think the Liberal Party, as an elder statesman, I guess, um, (laughs) an elder who's... But been around a long time in the Liberal Party. Um, I know you had to resign when you joined the Native Title Tribunal. D- do you think that that it, it, a new party might emerge, or is, is it is it that bad? Look, I I think forming a new party is um, very difficult. I know that there are a number of people, particularly in Melbourne, who were playing around with that idea a few years ago. Mm. The problem, and I had some contact with them, the problem as I saw it was that they couldn't find a, a really an ideological, a shared ideological basis for a new party. Um, I mean, you've got what to about liberalism? A, well, I think that I think that pretty attractive. Probably, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think. I think that, yeah, that, well, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I would see myself as a, as a liberal. Uh, I have a few conservative elements in me as well. But the, I think, I think it, you can't just have an issues-based party. Yep. Yeah, a party has to have more than issues because it has to have a few fundamental overriding ideas that tie people together. 
so that the individual decisions can be made in a logical, coherent and predictable way. Yep. I mean, that's what a political party has to be. Now, I, I, the Liberal Party keeps saying that they'll go back to their classic beliefs. Well, I got out some of their beliefs, and this is our beliefs uh, on the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Liberal Party. Okay. Core of the values of the Canberra Liberals is a belief in liberty, but not anarchy, racial and religious tolerance, and the individual, their initiative individuality and the acceptance of responsibility and the rule of law. Now, I, I'd go along with all of that. Yep, um, me too. That, that's, that's, well, I, I think I'm a liberal in those terms. The problem for the Liberal Party is to apply those principles to everybody and not just the people they see as like them. So you've got to have racial and religious tolerance. You've got to understand that all human beings are entitled to respect and you have to apply the rule of law Rigorously. Now, I would say that the Liberal Party has shown disrespect to migrants, refugees, to women, and it has not applied the rule of law. It did not apply the rule of law in the case of robo-debt. I think that was a high point, simple example of the total breakdown of Liberal principles. Mm. They've got to go back to those Liberal principles Yes, I'm quite happy with that. So I would rather see the Liberal Party restored yep. to its true purpose because I think that's a much more practical way forward than the idea of a new political party. On the other hand, Fred, I mean, I, I feel there was a Liberal Party split at the last election. I, I think, you know, the, the blue ribbon seats went another way. So now, in a way, Dutton is tied to Queensland LNP as the new power Centre, so it, you, you can see he's got a few problems trying to trying to restore that when most of the people in it aren't liberals. Well, I think that is that's going back to the problem I said before that the people remaining in the party are not representative of the people of Australia as a whole, mm. and that's uh, and that's difficult. And because you haven't got a broad based membership, you're not getting that platform within which those differences can be sorted out. There are differences between country and city, between rural and regional. Yeah, got you. There are differences between states. And the idea of a political party is that that's the, one of the places where those differences are sorted out and solutions are found. Parliament is one of the places where those things mm. are sorted out and solutions are found. But the Liberal Party, in fact, the current parliament, it is not participating mm in the great issues the Parliament's dealing with. It's just sitting back and opposing and leaving it to Labor, the Independents and the Greens to make the decisions. I mean, what is going on here? Mm. Well, Fred, thank you very much for talking um, with me and I hope you'll come back maybe once a fortnight or once a month and in such a, a huge, a huge year I'm, for look, I'm happy our to identity. Well... Let's uh, let's end it there, and uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk afterwards. Thank you for listening, and hope you enjoyed this Nofibs podcast. Until next time, goodbye.